Hey, first of all, thanks for listening to the Zero Ambitions podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please like and share on the platforms you've been listening on. It helps others find the podcast. Zero Ambitions is a play on words because Alex, Dan, Jeff and Sarah and all of our guests actually have very high ambitions for how we achieve low emissions within the built environment. Through the podcast, we aim to inform and disseminate information to those working in the built environment and those who aren't to encourage higher standards and best practices, whether you're a contractor, an architect or just a homeowner. Why is it important? Well, the built environment contributes around 40% of the UK's total carbon footprint and UK's buildings currently produce about 27% of carbon emissions with 18% coming from our homes alone. But decarbonising this sector is critical in how we achieve net zero. But while it's important to ensure our new buildings are as efficient as possible, our existing buildings are by far the biggest part of the problem. The UK has some of the oldest and least energy efficient housing stock in Europe, and about 80% of the buildings that will be around in 2050 have already been built, with the majority of those been built before 1990. So retrofitting our homes will be by far the biggest challenge we face over the coming decade. That's why retrofit and retrofit standards are so important and why we're delighted to have James Trainer from ECD Architects on today. However, before we start, we thought it would be helpful to give you an idea of what Enerfit is for those of you who might be listening uh, to us for the first time or, or who, those who don't come from a technical background. Whilst Passive House is primarily a new build standard, Enerfit is the equivalent low energy standard for existing homes. It uses the same principles, but with slightly different requirements to compensate for the limitations you find within their existing homes, such as their form factor, basically their shape, and their orientation. I don't want to get too technical. So basically, with Passive House and Enerfit focuses on reducing the energy demand, the operational energy demand within our homes through continuous insulation, mitigation of thermal bridging, but crucially through increased air tightness. Now, you might not know this, but up to 40% of our energy loss on the building can be through what we call air leakage. So, whilst insulation is, of course, really important, of equal importance is getting air tightness right. Once we do this, we've got to make sure that mechanical ventilation is in place to bring warm, fresh air into the building and take the old bad stuff out. And Enerfit as a standard focuses on these issues to ensure that we minimise the performance gap between anticipated and actual energy use within our buildings. Basically, the kilowatt hours per square meter that we need to heat our homes. Enerfit and Passive House use building physics and not just a hunch about how, we, how this is done. And we use the Passive House Planning Package Tool, PHPP, to do this, which is a sophisticated design tool in a way that others just aren't. We urgently need to decarbonise our homes. At the same time, we need to address fuel poverty within many of those homes. Standards like Enerfit and the ACB Carbon Light can do this. They can do this without having to throw lots of technology at the problem because at their core, they're about reducing the demand for energy through fabric improvements. Well, now that we've got that out of the way, let's listen to the real expert in Enerfit and we'll go to James. But before we do, on Enerfit, I'll put some links on the podcast page for some great guidance from my colleague Sarah at the Passive House Trust that can be downloaded for free. Hope you enjoy the podcast and thanks for listening. Welcome to Zero Ambitions podcast. Today, Dan, Alex, Duncan and myself are joined by James Trainer from ECD Architects. Welcome, James. Hello. Hi. James, can you tell us a little bit about um, ECD Architects and what you guys are doing in the realm of retrofit and decarbonising our housing stock? Uh, sure. Um, 
I suppose I could start at uh, the beginning. I don't know how far we might want to go back, but <laughs> uh, ECD is Energy Conscious Design. Uh, so we've been around uh, 42 years this year. So our uh, 40th, second anniversary. The 40th didn't quite uh, work with uh, COVID and uh, oh, um, <laughs> all parties were off. But um, uh, we, uh, we're, um, so we've been around for quite a long time doing sustainable architecture uh, and increasingly uh, retrofit work. Um, and uh, I suppose over the years, we've worked on lots of different types of buildings, um, but a lot of housing projects and looking to save energy. So in the early days coming out of the oil crisis in the, in the 70s and, and 80s, um, it was you know, simple insulation projects. Um, we were involved in uh, Briam way back when. Um, and then um, in more the last 10 years or so, uh, we've been heavily involved in passive house projects uh, and particularly benefit um, passive house refurbishment projects. Uh, so I think, uh, I suppose, in summary, <laughs> um, we do a lot of um, projects which um, are focused on decarbonizing, um, on uh, reducing energy consumption, but uh, also avoiding wastage. Um, so, you know, whether it's a new build school looking to have lower running costs or um, a housing association or council looking to uh, alleviate fuel poverty, um, it's uh, our clients are generally uh, looking for uh, an innovative solution, really, something um, that is sustainable, uh, low cost um, and attractive, obviously, the architecture. Uh, is vitally important. So, um, yeah, and I suppose in in recent years, um, the embodied carbon has also been part of the equation. That's something that we're increasingly talking to our clients about, and um, it's something which is inherent, really, with retrofit um, and re saving buildings uh, where they can be. But um, it's now starting to be um, properly measured, so that's encouraging. So. Yeah, and we'll come to Embodied Carbon, I think. But um, what I wanted to mention was also that you are the author of um, a really actually useful book called Enifit, oh, yes. <laughs> um, A Step-by-Step -step Guide to Low Energy Enifit. I'm beyond plugging the book, which, by the way, I think is really um, a great guide. Um, I bring it up because Alex, Dan, Duncan, myself are all at slightly different levels of understanding of retrofit and the built environment and the rate at which stuff needs to happen and on all those things. And what I think is really useful about the book is that it also gives a lot of context, um, which I think, you know, is really, really useful when we're all start talking about this. Because once you start getting involved in retrofit, you you start to realise that actually this is a very multifaceted issue that has sort of branches out into all sorts of different areas of um, of society really being really broad. So I think it's really, really useful. Um did you want to say anything about the the book or what what drove you guys to to release this because it's um it's really useful and it's only a couple of years old right yes that's right uh, it came out just uh, just before the lockdown <laughs> so uh, they managed to get the uh, the launch party in for that uh, no um yeah i completely forgot to mention that in my my uh, <laughs> intro i wouldn't make a very good salesman um but <laughs> Um, and, and I'm not really an author, to be quite honest. Uh, I, I'm really a reluctant author, I suppose. Um, and the reason I wrote the book really was because there wasn't another book uh, on the subject in English. Um, and uh, I had been involved in uh, a project down in Portsmouth for the city council down there, which was 
the largest uh, projects in the UK. That's at the time one of the largest in Europe. Uh, Enerfit projects, passive house refurbishment projects, and um, we really struggled to get uh, useful information um, on the standard. Um, and whilst we understood the passive house methodology, um, and um, uh, it's obviously very much um, linked to that because it's the it's, it's same sort of um, fundamentally the same methodology. It, it felt that I, I felt that it was necessary to have something. And the more I looked um, uh, around the world, there was clearly other things happening. Other people were uh, exploring how to um, apply this methodology. So it only be, I think it came out in 2010, 2009, 10 by the Passive House Institute. Um, but very few people um, knew much about it. So when we started uh, the project down in Portsmouth was 2012, um, and there was there was nothing uh, in print. Uh, and um, so when it came to about 2014-15, when we were going on site, a couple of colleagues of mine at the time, um, very good uh, colleagues, uh, Sophie Palsmakers and, and Nick Newman, who are now elsewhere doing uh, other exciting things, mm -hmm. um, uh, persuaded me really to uh, that uh, it would be worth writing a book on this and uh, I reluctantly agreed and, and then the RIBA uh, unfortunately gave me a, a, a publishing contract so <laughs> I had to write it. <laughs> um, yeah you were stuck then I mean I think we're, yeah. we're glad to have it I think because these are books you mentioned Sophie and, and Nick I know they're involved in all sorts of projects Sophie with um, writing Everything Must Change and mm. and Nick involved in Studio Bark and, and mm. other projects like that so lots of really interesting um, people to be involved with with it, but the book I think as well just does again. It's that it's that context because you mentioned there the dates. Those are like those are in no time at all. You know, it's it's really really a recent thing, um, and that always strikes me as um, quite incredible that we're so early on in this journey for for retrofit. Mm. Definitely. Um, sorry. No, I, I think I was just going to say, Sarah and James, I mean, I read the book, um, you know, yeah, just before lockdown a couple of years ago. And I think one of the things I like about it, and I think Dan and I have had this conversation before, is the book is accessible and so many things that you read around, you know, retrofit, particularly around the more technical aspect, become really difficult and a bit of a, a, a dirge in terms of, you know, almost academic papers. And I think what was quite refreshing about the book was it was a very clear and concise way of, of putting across the principles and the practice and, and with some, I liked some of the case studies in it. So it was, I thought it was excellent from a, if you were to pick that up and didn't have experience or understanding before, it wouldn't matter. I think that's really key in what we're doing. I, I think, that, and I thank you very much for the, um, the feedback. I mean, I suppose what I was trying to do with that book was reach out to lots of different audiences um, not just to be talking to architects and surveyors, um, but be talking to policymakers um, and you know the general public. Really, um, although it's obviously uh, a, you know a technical, in a sense, a technical um, book, it's something that most people should be able to read if they're interested in the subject. Um, and uh, yeah, it's. I think it, there's aspects that I would like to. I've written more about on the technical side and certainly the last chapter where it goes into the implementation there's much more you know i could say technically but then that's almost another book so uh, i think hopefully there will be more books um 
in more depth on this subject in due course from other people. But I just wanted to show also that there was um, it wasn't just about housing. There was a wide variety of building types out there that could be um, retrofitted, decarbonized, whatever you want to call it. And um, it, it's actually very possible. Um, it's, it's, it requires thought. It requires planning. Um, but, you know, if you're looking at um, a large portfolio of buildings, it's about setting off in the right direction and understanding your end goal, really, um, which, you know, is what PAS 2035, I know we might come to that later, but that's what that's all about. And the same with Enerfit, really. It's not necessarily that you have to do it all in one go, but know where you're heading. It's the important thing, isn't it? Um, we've come back around to some of these topics time and again, and it is about the plan, right? It's about um, the pre-work moment and the post-work um, evaluation, I suppose, which is the important bit, isn't it? And sort of, I mean, I don't know, you mentioned about it being, we've mentioned about it being accessible and we've mentioned about um, um, it being a really sort of useful immediate tool. Maybe Dan and Alex might have something more to add on this in terms of that accessibility because the things, the conversations that we have with Dan and Alex are about what's the message here and how do we get that out farther? Because as, as great as it is, it is also still not as commonplace as we'd like it to be. So maybe there's another book slash guide done with Dan and Alex <laughs> about doing that, about like reaching this wider audience. What do you got to say, Dan? <laughs> oh, we'd love to help. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I, I, I think, uh, I mean, this cuts into one of the, the key themes of our podcast and the proto manifesto we are building, which is about the urgency of the situation. Yeah. Like it's, it's hellish. Like the, or it will become hellish unless we do something about it. You know, temperatures mm. rising. We've already priced in 1.5 degrees. Like, uh, we're, we're, the powers that be don't seem too concerned. And what's being rolled out is inadequate by almost every metric. I mean, what's remarkable about what you did in Portsmouth is that you were, you were paid to do it <laughs> at mm. all. Like, how on earth did that come about? Like, how on earth did you find yourself in a position where you were able to carry out that project and uh, demonstrate the the viability? Like, the it's well, yeah seriously possible, especially for residents of those blocks, because no one likes spending money on poor people. Effectively, I think in that particular project, I mean, um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think in that particular project. Um, the residents were extremely angry um, and, and rightly so uh, about their fuel bills. They were paying mm. the real fuel bill. Um, they weren't subsidized as many um, estates are um, that are maybe very inefficient and maybe on communal heating systems and, and not paying the real price of their energy. But these residents, unfortunately, were paying the full price and they had a very inefficient um storage heaters so they were doubly affected by that so um and as a result they were in, in dire fuel poverty many of them were all of the properties that we monitored uh, with southampton university were not heating their homes adequately and some of them disastrously low temperatures you know 12 13 degrees celsius internal temperatures um so um, it was very clear from the beginning that the project was uh, had to address the fuel poverty um, and 
to be fair, um, as a simple, I'll say simple, uh, um, you can't see my fingers sort of <laughs> making <laughs> apostrophe marks there, but um, uh, a building regulations compliance um, overcladding scheme um, would have made some improvement, um, certainly would have reduced the fuel bills, but uh, nowhere near to the extent that we've managed to achieve with uh, the, the the full benefit uh solution and because we went down the benefit route uh, we and we demonstrated right at the beginning in the feasibility study what the options were and essentially there was two main options one was to go down the benefit route and the other was to do a, a standard insulation solution but that standard insulation solution also required a, a massive overhaul of the existing heating system and we were looking at at that time um, a communal heating system in a, what was, uh, what is, um, uh, a multi-storey large panel system, prefabricated 1960s building with all of the challenges that that brings, mm. structural challenges uh, as much as anything else, um, low ceiling heights, pipe work, all of that, um, which practically were extremely difficult to achieve. Um, so when you balance the, the challenges and you looked at the cost, um, we, we calculated at the time about 9% uh, cost difference between the benefit solution and the uh, building regs solution. And then we showed the difference in the uh, heating demand. So the existing heating demand was about 190 kilowatts, uh, whereas to take it to building regs, we were about 80. Taking it down to benefit, we were below 25. So you factor that in year on year and you get significant savings um so within yeah, the long-term view it's within so that yeah it? within that 15 16 year um period you can save the money that the extra over money that you've spent so um the client um was keen to do the right thing it was the most difficult building they had uh and the residents as i say were extremely angry supported by local councillors and there was a a real uh impetus to do the right thing um and in fairness to the cl the client portsmouth city council they weren't swayed by the vagaries of government funding um because at the time government funding was really cyclical it was well, it was going up and down like a yo-yo um and uh they didn't try and chase the money because uh, and it's a good job they didn't they, they based it on their own resources and uh if they relied on government funding it would have uh, evaporated by the time we started the job mm -hmm. i just i just wonder if i can ask a question james it's possibly something you don't know the answer to but would would wilmcote house have been tagged for potential demolition by the authority given the high prices given the the, the, the poor um the quality from the pictures of seen of the block and I just wonder it's a success story particularly from an ACAN perspective Sarah where we're looking yeah. at how we invest in neighbourhoods and our homes and to, to, to ensure the viability and I just think I wonder don't know the question it's rhetorical I wonder how many equivalent Wilmcote houses have been pulled down and demolished a new build built in place and I just think that's something we, we don't have the time and, and we certainly can't afford from a carbon perspective. So I, I just wonder if that's how you, if if you knew of any other and similar uh, blocks who which which may have uh, may have been demolished. Um, there's certainly been blocks demolished, and in some cases, uh, we've been involved in projects where those blocks 
have been demolished. And in some cases, they had to be demolished simply because the structural condition of them was so bad, mm. the, the prefabricated 1960s buildings, um, that uh, there was a real concern about the, the lifespan of that building. Um, and it was completely uneconomic to save those buildings. Um, but in the case of Wilmco and in the case of other projects we're involved in at the moment, um, we tr our default or our assumption is always in favour of refurbishment um, where we can. Uh, sometimes the structural condition is you know, so bad that it, it's not economic sensibly to do that. But in the case of Wilmco, we did look at the demolition option. Um, the client was probably never going to do that, but just to understand what the the cost of demolition and replacement and um, all the uh, extra uh, extra mm. costs uh, around um, residence relocation and all mm. of those things, it would have been around £25 million, um, whereas Wilmco refurbished to benefit standard was £13 million. So, you know, it's uh, even with yeah. the uplift, 9% uplift, it's still a massively better thing to do. Um, and carbon-wise, uh, you know, the embodied carbon um, is a fraction of, of what yeah. uh, it would have been. So given that this appears to have been a grand success, like, is this being replicated elsewhere uh, across the country? Like, again, hammering on the uh, urgency aspect and the mm. fact that this is exactly the sort of thing that needs to be replicated. I live in a leasehold block, so I'm looking at this uh, quite intently. Yeah. Because, like, I, I know our building is really poorly insulated. It's really badly ventilated, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if I could gather my fellow leaseholders, which that's a struggle I'm working on in a, a totally <laughs> different... Uh, it would be really good to, to know that there were solutions out there that you, not necessarily off the shelf, because every building is a yeah. snowflake. But, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Is it, is it working elsewhere? Uh, yes, it can. Um, I mean, we're doing a scheme at the moment um, for Newham uh, in London, uh, 23 storey blocks um, right next to the Olympic Park. Uh, and I think the assumption, you know, over the last 10 years or 15 years or so uh, has been in favour of demolition for those blocks. But uh, we've shown uh, that um, the, the uh, they can be refurbished, and um, we've we've uh, just submitted a planning application for uh, the refurbishment of the first one. So, and that will be to the NFIT standard as well. So, it can be done, um, and uh, it is often the most cost-effective and certainly carbon-effective solution. So, I mean, on that one, um, we looked at the we're starting to look more uh, regularly now at the embodied carbon implications and working with. Um, Sheffield University uh, on that, we showed that the the demolition options varied, or the demolition options, sorry, I should say, varied between uh, four and eight times worse than the, re the retrofit options, depending on which retrofit we went for. So um, the, it, it is almost um, inevitable, unless there's something structurally unsound about the building or it's fundamentally in the wrong place and there's a bigger plan going on for something else it is usually um the right solution to, to keep it um 
Yeah. And the other yeah. thing as well that's important about it, and it maybe kind of talks about to, is this replicable or is this is it happening? Is everybody just going right that worked? Let's just do that. It's um it's how we get that information out there and what databases are being used and are are practical for people, which I think is where um I know um Lariana in your office um was involved in the case studies part of the um Letty retrofit design guide, and it's in there. And I think it's what's useful about guides like this is that. It's in there and it is um, shown in the context of all of these different parameters that we talk about, which are important, you know, and as much data as is, is important. So we talk about carbon and, and economic cost and, and things like that. Um, but I think that kind of brings you around to when we're talking about the different cost metrics or the different value metrics, should we say, and move away from cost. Those different value metrics are the things that I think we need to be pulling out more and more all the time. So and talk about the occupants. And I think it's about making the occupants kind of front and center. I think um, we've talked again before about, um, you know, uh, carbon crop coined the term um, uh, resident client. So whether they're, it doesn't matter who's paying for it. It's the people who live in it and have to take care of those buildings and live in those buildings that it has to work for them. So I had a question about um, the Wilcott House project, you know, it must've been a difficult resident client body then to deal with if they're already completely feeling you know abandoned should we say and um what was the client liaison relationship there like how how were they included or um consulted or who was managing that process and and was that resourced properly because I think that's a, an area mm. that people see as not a value that's worth resourcing whereas actually it's incredibly important yeah I think um what I'd say is that um, Portsmouth, which is our, our client, were uh, extremely good at um, managing the, the relationships of the, the residents. So they'd inherited, um, in a sense, well, not inherited, but the, the people who I was uh, working with um, had in, uh, inherited a, a, a situation which um, was unsustainable. Clearly, something had to change. Uh, and they went about the the task of um, resolving that, I'd say, in the right way. You know, the, the, the uh, discussion we had, the ongoing discussions we had with the residents over probably the best part of two years before the, the works actually started, about three years really uh, from, from our initial appointment, um, from uh, the, the relationships between the, the resident liaison team uh, and the, the residents and, and the the um, uh, workshops that we held, you know, we, we really wanted to find out from the residents with the council who sort of brokered the process, um, how the residents felt. Obviously, they were angry about their fuel bills, but they actually liked the, the building. Many of the residents wanted to stay there, um, and there was a, quite a strong community. Um, so so often is the positive. case. Yeah. Um, but then there was residents who were ashamed to tell their friends where they lived because mm. it was a really um, not well-maintained building and there was lots of problems with it. So aside from the fuel bill. So um, it was a, it was a slightly um, mixed picture. But what we tried to do was really build on um, the feedback and show you know, where they'd said, the residents had said, we want to see these are our priorities and these are what we want to see. We then um, uh, responded with uh, the proposals and then had a series of workshops where we uh, refined them. 
so I remember one of the classic um, examples was um, there was open deck access and many of the residents uh, smoked uh, on those deck access uh, walkways uh, and some of them tried clothes as well and they wanted that open space uh, and actually what we proposed was simplifying the facade and enclosing those walkways which meant that you couldn't use them you couldn't smoke in those spaces that would obviously not be a safe thing to do and obviously um, it would you know fundamentally be quite different but they didn't want to lose the outdoor uh, the ability to enjoy the outdoor space the outdoor um, environment so we created um, on the other side of the, the, the property uh, a winter garden effectively so that, that they could dry their clothes in there they could you know, smoke if they wanted to with the windows wide open and that was their indoor outdoor space um, so yeah it's it was kind of a uh, incremental process of um, discussion and co-design with the, the residents um, and the other thing was the um, uh, pilot properties so we refurbished one property just to show the residents what it would look like. Um, so obviously we couldn't do everything externally that uh, was being done on the big project, but we could do, we could show them what the MVHR looked like um, and we could show them, you know, um, other sort of other internal changes. Um, and uh, it, it really helped um, get buy-in from residents on the process. Cause it was, a, you know, well, there's no two ways about it. It's a long process. Uh, and the other thing I suppose we did, which was something we'd done from uh, our previous project with uh, Hammersmith and Fulham. Uh, at, um, uh, we worked with the, La the London School of Economics uh, and they interviewed uh, residents before, during and after the retrofit to learn the, the um, outcomes from it and how it, the, the process impacted on the, the residents really. Um, so their, their report, uh, which, um, uh, Retrofit to the Rescue, is a, is a really good report worth looking up um, I was going to ask you about that. I was yeah. going to ask you about the post-occupancy evaluation part. That's less sort of technical and more about mm. like how people um, experience it, how, what what it feels like beyond the energy savings or the carbon savings. Or um, yeah. Alex, did you have a point? Sorry. Um, no, it was just more. Again, I thought it's really interesting. One of the things that we keep talking about is that um, there's also a fundamental aspect of retrofit, which is creating healthier homes, which is. Yeah as important as just making sure that we are lowering the carbon impact of the building. So yeah. I wanted to know if you could tell us a bit more about either within you know, this building, what other benefits in terms of healthy homes came out of it, or if there are other things that, again, considering that Dan and I are more on the novice side at the moment, you know, we're working our way up to understanding more, but what is it? what are the things that we need to know about uh, that the, the retrofit uh, uh, endeavors bring to to us as um, as people living in homes. I think that's really important to understand. Yeah, I think uh, we tried as much as possible to understand the benefits of what we were doing, um, and to help both our client, ourselves, and and others um, understand those and the, what the wider implications might be. Um, we actually tried on the Wilmcote House project to work with the local clinical commissioning group um, to understand uh, whether we could um, capture the health benefits from the, uh, the works. Uh, and unfortunately, at the time, um, the, whilst we thought we had quite a big project, 
um, the, in you know we are dealing with 111 homes. Uh, most health research projects, you're talking thousands of uh, individuals. So, um, and also the timescale didn't quite fit. So it wasn't um, as rigorous a piece of research as I would have liked in an ideal world, but uh, in terms of the health side of things. Um, but it's it certainly anecdotally from the feedback we had from um, all of the residents who were involved in the process and many, many residents involved, um, the feedback was um, very, very positive. Um, mm. So the way they were able to use their homes, um, you know, they, they didn't, the, the children could use um, the, the bedrooms for homework. You know, they weren't no longer too cold. There was mm. no damp and mold on the walls. All of those things um, were very, very clear, plain to see. Um, so, but in terms of the percentage reduction in asthma, that sort of thing. That's what I was hoping to capture from the, yeah. uh, the piece of work. It, it, we weren't able to show that in that particular project, but that's something I'd like to do in, in future ones. Yeah. So I think that's a really important bit. Oh, sorry, Dan. The, um, the long-term thinking, uh, and this, I suppose, sort of fits into part of that. I mean, even the idea of doing post-occupancy evaluations is still something that is a hard sell sometimes. Um, but incorporating them and making them a little bit more it's like this again coming back to this sort of I I, I kind of hesitate in calling them co-benefit co-benefits to retrofit we've talked about this before as well because they are and possibly should be more valued as than just as as a co-benefit these are like fundamental improvements to things I talked to my sister-in-law about this who's in in the NHS as a as a, a matron and she was saying how you know we talk about this as the health burden associated with different things that aren't directly always thought about as a health burden and the cost to that and it would be great that if there was a mechanism that was just par for the course in doing these things which then gives us that really vital data to get more buy-in for these funding rounds that come from local government or from central government, wherever it's coming, so that you can sort of say, and there's this cost, um, which is 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 really important and captured and and shown through this like feedback data, so that it is this multifaceted thing that you're addressing. Mm. Yeah, core benefits is as bad as retrofit as a, <laughs> a way of naming uh, creating a category. It's just dire because ultimately everything is just about cost. Like that's all anyone really cares about. So you've got to find a way to elevate these things into a, a different sphere so they become integral to it. Co-benefits is a sideline. Mm. Uh, sorry, Duncan, you were you were gesturing that you had something. No, no, I was I was just agreeing. I was I was doing the A can agreement. Yeah, he's so, like, oh, right. that's yeah. the one sure. I don't know, James, if we told you I've, about the wavy jazz hands, but that's we're all in agreement. I've, I've, I've moved away from the Churchill nodding dog, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to just basically the guy who looks as if he's surrendering, you know. So. <laughs> so, We've been joined by Jeff as well, just to let everybody know in case you suddenly hear another voice. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I was uh, speaking at an online event, and um, so popular, Jeff. Ruined that event. I'm going to ruin this one. Now I got kicked out. No, um, <laughs> no, it hasn't happened yet. Actually, Jesus, that would be that would be a new low. Um, but uh, yeah, and James, sorry for for missing. Um, uh, between most of what you had to say, I guess. Uh, what well, you, now, what Jeff, you, you have homework. You can listen back when we uh, when we release this, and you can uh, listen back and feedback then. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you're touching on a lot of very interesting issues, and I completely get what you're saying, Dan, about co-benefit being a problematic 
word. It's like, you know, a co-benefit of, uh, uh, I don't know, a car, of driving a car is a car that doesn't kill you, you know, maybe. Yeah. You know, uh, how, yeah. how, do you, how do you articulate these things in a way that, that uh, I guess it's, you need to try and resist this urge of people to, to be reductive and to just think, you're right, cost is, is, is the focus uh, that people have. I, mean, I don't know what you're, what, what you're getting at with this specifically, Dan, but when people talk about cost, they do just usually think in, uh, in terms of, of a reduction on their energy bills versus the amount of money to achieve that, you know. This is, this is a consequence of the, the broader strategy or strategies that are employed throughout our societies, cultures, politics. Like it's different in the UK and Ireland, but it isn't that different. Everyone's just mithered about how much will the thing cost, thinking about capital expenditure rather than operational expenditure. And I mean, the the impact, like if you're thinking about it from like a, a state or local government perspective, like making people healthier, uh, enables you the, the local authority to spend less on healthcare mm. but because nothing's joined up everything's increasingly fragmented privatized blah 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 mm. you can't tie all these things together all anyone's really going to care about which was what i was going to interject with was how long does this retrofit last james mm. like you you described it as being the most cost effective but what's mm. what's its lifespan because like the the discourse is generally about cost effectiveness or rather with regard to retrofit cost ineffectiveness because mm. where we're looking at decarbonizing and i'm thinking of domestic users like you know homeowners primarily like it, it's how difficult it is to uh install a heat pump and have it be viable i mean that's that's the general discourse and i think i mentioned just before we started recording i listened to you and yours on radio 4 today and uh, what's the face? Winifred Robinson bleating on about cost ineffectiveness or the difficulties, none of the benefits, you know, the unviability for many homes or consumers, the disruption that's involved with uh, installing or retrofitting any property, the what is framed as an exorbitant cost with where it's compared to uh, gas central heating and with scant reference to any of the reasons behind why we're doing this you know throwing in net zero is it's a phrase we all know but no one's really thinking about why it's a phrase so i mean how long is this retrofit program supposed to to exist for mm. like being reductive again jeff sorry <laughs> are you asking okay. how long in like in project by project terms or are you talking no, 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 about national long, strategies so focusing on plymouth still like uh, how long is that expected to last yeah. like because you've what you did was you engaged people you made them happier you made them healthier you reduced their costs you made the building more efficient but it has a a lifespan um it has a lifespan but um i mean fundamentally uh there's uh there's lots of that i don't know if you're familiar with the term a long life loose fit um it's sort of an old-fashioned it's about 50 years ago i think it was coined um by the riba but, but some parts of the building last an awful long time mm. so the structure of the building can last 100 years um the services in that building might last 20 maybe um and so some elements will need replacing and some um the insulation in that wall that we've put there in 2000 17, 18, uh, should be still there in 50 years' time. Um, now, the uh, actually, I forgot to mention earlier, we didn't actually replace the heating system 
in oh, Wilcote wow. House because we didn't because the residents don't need to heat their homes fundamentally very much anymore. Um, so um, one of the uh, uh, so sorry somebody's trying to call me <laughs> no way. Um, <laughs> um, so one of the uh, things we uh, did there was we showed that actually um, the cost of replacing the existing heating system, mm. which was um, electric storage heaters, would have been about a half a million pounds. But actually, um, if we can reduce the heating demand to, to such an extent um, that actually all that we're left with is the need to heat hot water, mm. largely, um, then why, why spend half a million pounds on something we don't need to do? Um, so we didn't. And um, so that the client was happy with the saving on the, on the budget for that. And we thought we'd we'll monitor it post-occupancy, and we have, which we've been doing now for three years or more. Um, and the residents haven't largely been using their heating. Um, uh, many never switch it on. Uh, and uh, those that do, um, it's fairly intermittent. So yeah, I can personally say, having been in the building in the depths of winter, it's minus three outside, unheated space is still warm. Um, so, you know, it's uh, quite in, um, surprising what you don't need. I think, be- I know Alex and, and Jeff both want to come in, but I just want to say something on the on the how long will it last thing. Coming back to something that Duncan had mentioned ages ago about um, the budget that when you were working with Renfrewshire Council that you had, you've got a maintenance budget. Like every, every building is going to need maintenance at some point. You're going to be spending money on stuff anyway. It's what you're choosing to spend it on and what, the, yeah. what that gives you and whether or not that's worth it. So I guess how long does this retrofit last is into some, in, in a certain way, kind of not the relevant um, point because they would have had to spend money on doing something anyway and it would have lasted probably less and it would have been a bigger embodied carbon cost mm-hmm. or a bigger social cost or uh, a whatever other cost. So I think in terms of those things that we talked about and the metri- metrics of measuring and the long term planning and thinking and and the and seeing the benefits over that long term is probably a really important thing to make sure that we're doing not just talking about how do you do a retrofit but how we view all of these um all of our environments all of our our neighborhoods in that like long-term way sorry alex just one simple question i was really curious to know what what you mean in terms of uh, monitoring what what does it equate to in practical terms um in that um building its temperature uh, and co2 so um yeah uh, um yeah it's we basically uh i think i said at the beginning we were monitoring before the work started so we, we knew that the internal temperatures in many of the flats were 12 13 14 degrees um uh, and now we know that you know that they're in excess of uh, 20 21 um in all flats and um you know we, and we know from um feedback, anecdotal feedback from residents through the LSE work that um, uh, people are not needing to heat their homes. Um, uh, so, and the CO2 um, has been interesting. They've all got uh, individual MBHR units. Um, um, one of the interesting things that came out of that was one, we got fishtail um, uh, fixings or um, uh, cover plates on the uh, MBHR unit so they cannot be tampered with, so they're running constantly. Uh, but somebody did manage to tamper with it uh, and managed to damage it and, and stop it working. Uh, and because we had a CO2 monitor, we could see that um, they, obviously they were running out of oxygen. <laughs> um, so we, the landlord was able to intervene. So, uh, you know, there will always be somebody who will um, 
probably seek to, to damage. Um, but you know, in, a, in a large block like that, that's not uh, surprising. No. Yeah, I just wanted to chip in the fascinating stuff on the lifespan stuff. Um, just wanted to chip in with the fact that, um, first of all, that we, we did an article a few issues back on long term performance of the first class of houses. Um, to understand what was going on. And there was a study done, the first class of house, which is a four-unit terrace in Darmstadt, uh, in Germany, was built in 1990 um, using, I should say, uh, bespoke products because a lot of the stuff that, that the industry that's developed around passive house didn't exist at that stage. So they had custom-built windows, which wouldn't have had anything like the robustness you'd expect, I suppose, uh, this is perhaps an assumption from my perspective, that you might expect from a from uh, a, 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 a a tried and tested and certified uh, system now um and uh they similarly the air tightness there weren't the proprietary air tightness products around at the time but 25 years after it was completed there was a, a destructive study done to take core samples of external insulation to measure heat loss through the triple glazing and to inspect the events uh, the, the ducts rather um for you know what kind of growth uh, uh, organisms, the microbial sort of stuff they might they expect to find in there, um, and the, the the academic paper which we referenced in our article basically concluded that the ducts were as clean as a whistle. Um, so the, the which is extraordinary. They predicted even the building services ducts were uh, and the MVHR unit itself for the, for the most part were predicted to last for at least another twenty five years, which is extraordinary. Um, now they were they were. You know, replacing filters like clockwork every six months. I think that probably would have been would have been a factor. Um, but same thing with the external insulation and the windows. There, all of it was expected to last. I think the point is, you get when you make a building dry um, in terms of stopping vapor from getting into the into the structure to cause damage through the air tightness, through the insulation, through through the elimination of thermal bridging, and through a mechanical ventilation system that's shifting vapor from the building too. Um, when you dry and warm, you are Getting the building to a state of kind of equilibrium, steady state condition, um, pretty quickly, um, which uh, it should be very difficult to disrupt. Um, you know, short of people going around with a lump hammer uh, in there. Um, oh. So that's not to say that things can't go wrong with buildings, but I think, I think that's a fundamental point. And I, and I would be arguing, and I think it's an interesting one to tease out, that when we start doing a building life cycle assessment on buildings, I think we could be factoring in the uh the construction standard in that you know uh, i think i think there's an argument that the likes of passive house notwithstanding the need to take care in terms of of maintenance and education of the occupants and so on i think there's an argument potentially for increased lifespan of of the, of the building and of the components mm. um, absolutely i think you know we were involved in uh, lots of non-passive house uh, remedial projects and uh um, over the last um, five years or so, um, following Grenfell, sadly, and because of the nature of the work we do, we're a lot of, involved in a lot of high-rise refurbishment projects, and we've been involved in helping clients uh, find out really what has been built or has been um, modified in their buildings and how they've uh, been uh, left with a bit of a can of worms in many cases, um, both in the services and in, and in the um, envelope um, what a bad job looks like and uh, <laughs> I'm sure we've all seen that and you know um, a, a shoddily installed MVHR system with uh, flexi dot work um, you know trailing all over the place with you know with no uh, proper plan um, or thoughts to the design um, it, 
is uh, going to have a much shorter lifespan than uh, a well-designed system, um, you know, with rigid, rigid duct work, etc. So I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I it, like all good conversations, I feel like we've touched on so many things that I could easily spend another hour going down and talking to each one. But one thing I'd love to just ask you in kind of conclusion, um, James, is for practices that might be listening and thinking uh, we're just not really involved as much with retrofit or with um, lower carbon um, building projects and that they really want to, but find it difficult maybe when they're looking after, you know, the payroll for however many people they might have, what might be the advice that you could give um, in terms of assisting that pivot in for, you know, for their businesses, aside from maybe doing things like, I don't know, poaching some of your staff, like John Heaney and Lariana Padron, who are excellent, <laughs> aside from poaching those guys who really know what they're doing. And then I'm sure you've got an office full of them. What might be the um, kind of best advice that you would give um, other practices wanting to, to make that change? I would say, see this as an opportunity um, because it really is um, and send yourself or send somebody in your office uh, on a passive house course um, because it will open their eyes. And as it did for me about 10 years ago, um, I, and I think also be prepared to learn from your mistakes. So, um, you know, uh, there's been projects over the years where, uh, you know, before we were doing passive house buildings where we've um, done what we thought was the right solution at the time. And it's been okay. The client's very happy with it, but the air tightness wasn't that great. We didn't quite understand why it wasn't that great. Um, now we do. Um, and I think uh, we're all on a journey in terms of our understanding of this. And uh, uh, I think be prepared to to learn and and share lessons where things haven't gone quite to plan. Um, you know, we we often say you know that our industry hasn't got the black box flight recorder, <laughs> uh, and we we hide our problems, and that's the problem. <laughs> um, so you know, we need to be able to share uh, you know, the successes as well as the things that haven't worked out as as we hoped. So yeah, yeah, I completely agree. James, um, it's been great having you on. Yeah, listen, it's been amazing. I, th I think we have to get James back on again, Sarah. This is we could probably talk for another hour. Here. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you'll come back to us, James, mm. <laughs> sounds, cool. sounds great. It's a lot better when you have people like this on and, and people like me not on, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no so denials. Good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, no, Jeff. Speaks volumes. Jesus. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we hope you enjoyed this. And listen on for um, for future uh, sessions with James and more to cool. come. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, James. Thank thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.